looked at someone's life and said, I don't know what it is about your life or that person's life, but they have something that I don't have. I mean, that's, God uses all kinds of stuff. And so while I'm cynical, um, it's not saying that those are not effective, um, but what I really think is that, that we need a more biblical understanding of what it is. Maybe we don't push both of those out of the discussion completely, but maybe we acknowledge the fact that maybe there, that there's some room in the middle that's also evangelism. Because, well, there's a lot of reasons to do that. So, um, last week it was about storytelling and loving our story and, and recognizing the simplicity of evangelism. Uh, tonight I, I want to do another kind of foundational thing. Next week we're going to get into some theological stuff, and then after that we're going to get into some practical stuff. So, um, Luke 15, we, we see something about Jesus' life that may seem a little bit obvious, um, but it's worth, uh, worth pointing out. Jesus' life uh, communicated something. Like the way, that, the way that he lived, the way he, that he carried himself, his actions, his words, uh, his countenance, his, everything about him, everything communicated something. And we see one thing here, uh, one very important thing that was communicated, and it made it into the Gospels. Look in Luke 15. Um, the first two verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This man receives sinners and eats with them. If you were to narrow down your life accomplishment to saying, I hope that these five things can be said of me whenever, um, whenever I am dead, and at my funeral... If one of these five, hopefully all five, are said of me, then I will have lived a life that was fulfilling. That would be a pretty good one to have in your top five. Now, it may not seem like it at first, and it may bring up some questions, but I think by the end you'll, you'll all, it'll make sense. This man receives sinners and eats with them. He receives tax collectors and eats with them. Um, to us, I mean, a tax collector, you know, Whatever. It is what it is. Um, back then, there was a whole lot more to it than that. Tax collectors were um, basically, uh, in order to be a tax collector, you bought your way in, and then you would go around and you would collect you know, money from all of your fellow citizens. So, one, you weren't patriotic. Uh, two, you sold them out because um, you were basically about to mess them all over. And so, tax collectors were notorious for being greedy because you know, they, would they would go in and, I mean, Rome, they didn't care they just wanted X amount of dollars. So tax collectors would usually pad that number in order to gain a profit. And everybody knew it, but you had to pay them whatever, he, whatever they told you. And so just to be in that profession just brought, had this connotation with it that, um, that you were a sellout and that you were greedy. Um, and nobody liked them, but it was very lucrative. And for some, lucrative trumps being liked you know, any day of the week. So there were tax collectors and there were sinners now, all throughout the you know, New Testament, you see sinners just kind of thrown around. Um, and we're talking like anybody who uh, wasn't righteous and uh, living that pious life. 
if your profession, like a tax collector, or um, you know, if, your tax, if your profession had some attachment to it, um, if you were uh, a, a prostitute, or if you were a known adulterer, or um, if you were like a convicted criminal, or whatever, like any, like just kind of, sinners kind of just lumps in all this stuff. It also lumps in people who had uh, certain diseases and afflictions because that was considered to be a punishment for something that you did or that your parents did. Um, so they were kind of lumped in there. So you have like your lepers and uh, people who were born, like the man born blind, uh, those kind of, pe- you know, anything like that. Um, that would just, whenever you see sinners, all those people fall in there. You're talking social outcasts. You're talking religious outcasts. Um, you're talking about any, anybody weird, anybody not doing what the Pharisees thought they needed to do. Because that's who's gathered here, the scribes and the Pharisees, right? The ruling uh, religious, you know, body, like the most influential one. And you have the scribes who they were just the experts in dealing with the texts and, you know, all this kind of stuff, whatever. So, um, so when they say that Jesus eats with sinners, what that means culturally is that he invites them to share his table or when they invite him, he goes to share their table. But whenever that happened in Jewish culture, there was a connection that happened there. Like you, um, you ate with like-minded and like-lifestyled, that's not really a word, uh, you ate with people who had similar interests and similar lifestyles and similar whatevers. So here you have a rabbi who is, is a teacher. He is a model Jew. Uh, he is... He is everything that everyone is supposed to be, you know, trying to be. You have this rabbi who sits down and eats with tax collectors and prostitutes and people with diseases and convicted criminals and whatever. That was his reputation around town. And what that meant was he is associating with them, so that means he is one of them in all the ways that he doesn't need to be one of them. Now this, this is, is maybe not as foreign as we would think. Because uh, in some like, Christian circles, whether it's churches or, you know, churches, groups of people within churches, youth ministries, uh, you know, just a lot of just those kind of things, there's a little bit of that that still trickles down. Um, if you've ever heard somebody say, yeah, so-and-so has just been running with the wrong crowd. Um, sometimes that is a legitimate, like, concern. Um, sometimes it just means that like the person has, is friends with people who are not like them or like your religious beliefs or whatever, uh, sometimes that's a negative because you're running with the wrong crowd, in air quotes, and you're participating in the things they're doing. Um, and so sometimes that's not good. Sometimes that's exactly what's supposed to be happening. But most of the time it's considered not good. If someone says, yeah, he's kind of been running with the wrong crowd lately. That's kind of, kind of a throwback to this sort of mentality is that if you, if you hang out with the pigs long enough, you're going to start to smell like a pig kind of deal. So they said, Jesus, if he's sitting there and he's eating with tax collectors, then that means he also is greedy, and he also is a sellout, and he also is, you know, whatever. That he also is a liar, that he also, you know, whatever. That association would happen there. And it's interesting that that detail is included in the text, that that is a part of his reputation. Um, so verse 2 says, And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. 
that table fellowship was as intimate as it gets. And whenever you shared a table with someone, that meant that, that you were like in this like long-term, intentional, like, like a real like relationship with them. You didn't have table fellowship with just random people. It's kind of like now. I mean, there just aren't many times when like you go and you have dinner with somebody and you just don't know them at all. Like, you have dinner with people you either know or you want to get to know them. And so when the word got out that Jesus he eats with these people, that was that really communicated something to the scribes and the Pharisees. And what it communicated was he also is a sinner. He also is just like them. This guy's trouble. This guy's not a legitimate rabbi. So his life communicated something. But it communicated something to the sinners and the tax collectors too. And I think that is, that's the significant angle for us. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were grumbling and they were like judging him and they were kind of left in that category. But think about it from another angle. Think about what it meant for a rabbi to either invite someone to eat with him who is socially or religiously outcast or to accept an invitation. Remember when Zacchaeus, uh, remember we little man? He was, uh, he was a tax collector. And what did, what did he do? He invited Jesus where? Into his home. And Jesus went. And what did everybody say? Oh, can't believe he went. He went to his home. He went to eat with him. I can't believe that. When Jesus called Matthew, Matthew, his name was Levi, and he was a tax collector. And Levi went home, prepared a meal for Jesus. Jesus accepted it. Think about what it means to someone who is, has either chosen a profession or a lifestyle or is just in a situation where they're diseased or they're afflicted or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, when the finger's been pointed at you, it's your fault, you're wrong, you're the issue, you, 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 not us, we're the pious ones, we're the holier-than-thou ones, we're, we got it right, you got it wrong, you're what's wrong with culture, blah, blah, blah. Imagine what it means for them when this rabbi, who ha- has this reputation, yes, of, of overcoming those issues that are there, but this guy's healing people, this guy's preaching, and it's just blowing people's minds. He's got, there's something about this guy, and, and he's willing to accept my invitation, or he has invited me to come and to share the table with him. Imagine what it com- communicated to them. See, when I think about it like that, I'm like, forget the Pharisees, man. Like, we, we need to be worried about what it communicates to the quote-unquote sinners. I think for us, when we look at that, that in and of itself is a snapshot of the gospel. It seems like for a while I've just been obsessed with these, with that snapshot concept of just almost I can just almost like see it in my mind. Is there's Jesus, and there's you know three or four people sitting there, and in my mind, of course, you know, whatever. Like there's a woman with a shady past, and there's a tax collector there, and I don't know he's got like dollar signs for eyeballs or something, I don't know. And there's, you know, there's just like people sitting there and they all, they have these issues and these backgrounds and they're sitting there around this table. I don't know, they're talking maybe. He's maybe treating them like they're humans, you know. He's not blaming them. He's talking about the kingdom. See, that's, that's the gospel. Messed up people 
sitting down with the Savior of the world for an intentional, long-term relationship that's not about their sin and not about their issues and not about their struggles. It's about a king. It's about a kingdom. It's about the glory of God. That's, that's, getting, that's getting down to what evangelism is really about. That's a, that's a beautiful image of our Savior. Beautiful image of Jesus. I'm saying these things are not important. This, this is important right here. So in the face of this grumbling, you have, a, you, you have a life that's communicating something to the scribes and the Pharisees, a life that's communicating something really important to the sinners. Okay, I'm going to keep using air quotes because it bothers me to call people sinners. But, uh, and then, then you have a life that's communicating something to us, saying this is what the gospel looks like. This is the role that you play in the gospel. The parables that follow are Jesus' response to that grumbling, to that accusation, to them saying, I can't believe that he would, you know, receive and eat with these sinners. This is what he says. Look at verse 3. So he told them this parable. That's how we know it's his response. So this is him, his response to the grumbling. I love Jesus because he could have just, he could have just stuck it to them, you know. Like he could have just, but he he just almost never does that. Sometimes he's, he does, but most of the time he's, well, what about this? And he kind of presents something that leaves them walking around, kind of, kind of scratching their heads and usually looking pretty stupid. Um, it says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's, not, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So maybe he does kind of stick it to them. Because he's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's basically saying, this sinner right here, um, when repenting and uh, being forgiven of sin, there's more as a bigger party in heaven for this one, for this prostitute, for this tax collector, for this uh, person born with some affliction that you think is whatever, more rejoicing over that one person than 99 of you guys. That had to rub them the wrong way. Probably. Look at the next one. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And I think they're probably like, Okay, we got it the first time. And then he just cranks it up a notch. Because to lose a sheep, that's one thing. To lose money, you know, maybe that's something else. But then when he goes to the son that was lost, I mean, that, that gets, that's a relational angle. And that's really getting down to the heart of things. We're not going to read it, but you may be familiar with the story. Guy's two sons. Older son thinks he's awesome. Younger son just wants to get out of, out of the house. And he goes to his dad and says, I, don't, I, I know when you die I'm going to get all your money, and I don't really want to wait till then. I kind of wish you were dead now so I could have it. So why don't you just give it to me now, and I can get out of here. 
father gives him the money. He goes away. He goes to Vegas. Loses it all. Um, and, uh, yeah. and then um, he didn't really go to Vegas. It's not a text. But uh, loses it all. Um, he's starving. He decides to go back and just ask that his dad hire him on as one of the servants there or whatever. He goes back home. Uh, Dad's been looking for him, been watching for him to come back. Dad runs to him, um, welcomes him back in, puts the, puts the family ring on his finger, gives him some shoes and a robe, brings, in, brings him back to the house, throws a big party so everybody knows that his son is found again. Three stories, and in each story there was, there's some key elements that teach us something about evangelism. Um, the first one is that in every story something... Um, there was a separation. The, the owner was separated from something that was of great value to him. You lose a sheep, you lose a coin, you lose a son. I know parents don't own their kids, but there's some ownership there. There's some stewardship there. There's some responsibility there. So there's a separation. And then in each case, uh, they put on a search. You go look for the sheep. You sweep the house, look for the coin. Uh, the father is out looking. You can read in the text, he's, he's looking at a, a long way off, just scanning the distance, seems like, for his son. And then whenever, whenever they're reunited, there's this, this party with the sheep and with the coin and with the son, and there's this celebration that once what once was lost has now been found, and the owner has been rejoined with what was lost that was so valuable to him. That tells us something really, really big about evangelism, especially when you think about those three stories being Jesus' response to the grumbling about him hanging out with sinners. First thing it tells us is that, okay, there's a separation between God and people. But what's interesting is that I, I think in, in America today, you, maybe not you, but maybe, maybe you, would look at the sheep story and be like, but you still got 99, right? If you have $101 bills and the wind blows one away, I mean, you still got 99, right? Maybe it's a little bit different when he uh, takes it to a coin. There's only 10 coins, so I guess it depends on how much they're worth with inflation and whatever, you know. You're probably like, well, you know, you still got some there. I mean, I might give up after, after a little while. You know, you look around, but maybe it's not there. But then when it gets to a kid, I mean, you lose a kid, it's not good. But I think it's real easy for us to look and kind of have that attitude of, well, it's just one sheep, it's just one coin. It's just, I mean, the son, but he was a rebellious punk. I mean, God, he was probably better off without him. But it shows us something about evangelism, and it's that um, those sinners that were sitting at the table um, they, had been, they were separated from God because of their sin, just like uh, the Pharisees were, just like everybody that's ever been born has been separated from God because he is holy and we are not. And so there's this divide that's there. What we have to recognize is that at that time, 100 sheep, if you lost one, I mean, that's, that's valuable. Not because you, like, name them all and you rate them, they're precious. Not, not that, because, like, that was, that was money. That was income. You lose one, that's a big deal. The story about the coins, I mean, that's 10% of, who knows, that might have been her entire year's wages right there. And a son, I mean, there's, there's 
there's value there. I don't care how rebellious or how whatever he is. That father loved that son. So there's a separation, but what makes the separation so bad is the value that the owner places on what was lost. So you have Jesus sitting around a table with people that are separated from the Father. And every single one of those people, every single time he ate with them, um, an incredible amount of value was placed on each person. Regardless of the social whatevers and the religious whatevers, God looks at them and he loves them. And where there is love, there is value. And so there's a big, big concept in evangelism is the fact that every person on the planet, God loves, and we say that a lot, Jesus loves you, God loves you. But where there's love, there's value. And the fact that there's separation there, that, that creates that same longing that we have when we're separated from those that we love or the things that we love, except times like a billion, maybe more. There's a separation that's there. Do you think about it like that? I mean, Jesus, he's, when he sits at a table with sinners, he's, in a sense, being reunited with what was separated from him. So in all three of those stories, there's, there's a separation, and then there's a search that's put out. And then when things are reunited, there's joy and a celebration. See, that's really what, what your story is, if you want to bring last week into this week. Is at some point, you realized, God loves me and values me enough to send a search party, basically, to come and to get me, so that I could be reunited to Him. And whenever I'm reunited to Him, the heavens rejoice. That, that's another way of saying, I once was blind, now I see. Just kind of a different angle on it. Our lives pattern these parables. I was separated. I realized the separation because a search party came and got me. And maybe that search party had a bullhorn and yelled at you in Free Speech Alley. Maybe that search party took a track and walked you through the four spiritual laws. Maybe that search party was a, the Gideon organization who put a Bible in your hotel room. Maybe that search party was a Sunday school teacher um, who just told you over and over and over and over again for years how much Jesus loves you. Maybe that search party was your parents. Maybe it was a youth minister. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a sermon or a podcast that you listened to. Maybe it was a sunset. But that separation, is not a, that's not a situation God's just going to sit back and just say, well, I got 99 sheep, so let's let that one go. Oh, I got nine coins, so let's let that one go. Well, I got another son, and he kind of likes me, so let the rebellious one go to Vegas. That's not how it works. Your story is a story because you were separated, and all of a sudden you realized your separation because someone came and told you that God sent someone to tell you. And whenever your separation um, ceased and God brings you back in, there's a celebration. You know what you become? You become a part of the search party that goes out to find other people. So the search party has just been getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It's called the church. That's us. So at the heart of evangelism, there is love, but within that, as a part of that, there is value. 
And I think that was a really big missing element of evangelism for, for me for years and years and years and years. And I think for a lot of Christians out there, it becomes a task, it becomes a mission, but not mission in a good sense, mission in a bad sense. It becomes the Baptize a Million in 2010 campaign. You know, it becomes this numbers game or whatever, and it stops being about the fact that God just values every single person on the planet, and we're a part of the group that goes out and makes sure that they know that. I mean, think about a rabbi sitting around a table, not blaming them, but loving them. Think about that worth that comes up. See, that's, when we talk about ministering to your coworkers and praying for them, I mean, that's, that's a snapshot of the gospel. Because that is a way that you, as a search party member, carry that message that that person is valuable to God. When we say, hey, um, when you leave here and you go somewhere, don't be a jerk to your waiter. You know why we say that? Is it because we want a good reputation in town? I mean, we do, but that's not why. Because that's a snapshot of the gospel. Because if that waiter or waitress has been treated like, you know what, all day long, and then someone comes in and, they, and they're just kind and considerate and they don't boss them around, and you tip well. It conveys value. It, it does. I always joke about mine is Walmart cashiers, man. I, every time, it just gets me. Because um, one, I mean, I, I always joke about how like that, they always like to comment on whatever it is I'm buying, like guess what I'm about to cook or something. I don't know why, it just bothers me. It, just being honest. But the truth is, I have to get to a point where knowing that that's an issue place for me, I mean, the whole Walmart property is really a big issue for me and my fellow, human, you know, fellow humans. Um, but knowing that, all right, knowing that, I shouldn't just run into Walmart without letting that go through my mind. Not letting Luke 15 go in and say, you know what, I'm about to go in with people who are separated and I'm a part of the search party and they need to know how valuable they are to God. Now, does it mean I have to go, I have to preach to the cashier? No. It means I have to be obedient. But yes, kindness. Yes, courtesy. Convey that value because my life communicates something. And your life communicates something. Jesus' life communicated that um, sinners and tax collectors were, um, were valuable to God. Does my life communicate that Walmart cashiers are valuable to God? Does my life communicate that my neighbors are important to him? That he loves them, yes, but there is incredible value, so much value that he's not going to settle for this number of people in our church. That he's not going to settle for however big your community group is. He's not going to settle for less. He's not going to settle for 99%. He's going to push all the way. He's going to keep going. He's going to keep pushing us. People always say, oh, I don't want the ring to get any bigger because we might have to go to two services. Like, oh, no, that would be the worst thing ever. I love my community group because there's 12 of us and that's the perfect size. 
99 is just enough sheep. We don't need any more. There's some churches where all the, in all their small groups, they, have a, they put an empty chair in every small group on purpose to represent the fact there's always somebody. And we're not going to do that. I'm not trying to pitch that idea. But the concept's pretty cool. So Jesus' response to them was to tell these stories. And that communicated something to the Pharisees. Maybe they didn't get it. But I bet those tax collectors and those sinners, I bet they got it. We get to be the ones that says, you know what, I know that, uh, I know you may have been told this, but they're wrong. I know that maybe your, your parents, you know, treat you this way because of this, but they're wrong. I know you might think because this happened, that means this, um, but karma is a big lie. You're valuable to God. The truth is, my life is going to communicate something. I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks. My life is going to communicate something. I could go to Walmart and it could communicate to my cashier that he or she is not valuable, that I am better than him or her. Or I could get a reputation like Jesus had. And so that, I mean, that's big for me. Um, I don't, I'm not, not like a terribly like emotional person, like tears and stuff. And so a lot of times on Sundays, they're like, I kind of rehearse stuff. Uh, in my head, I, there, I saw a show one time, like when I was younger, and there's this preacher, and he would go like in the back of his property or whatever, underneath some tree and like rehearse his sermons. Um, if you know what movie that is, I need you to tell me because it, it, I think about it a lot. And I, I don't know what movie it is. But anyway, uh, and he's like underneath this tree, and he's like, I mean, he's getting after it, you know. And and I, I wish you could hear the sermons in my mind on Sunday afternoon. They're so good, <laughs> so good. And uh, never quite as good uh, at night. But today, like I, was, like, I was emotionally stirred in a convicting kind of way about what my life communicates, you know. And the potential that is there, like when you think about um, this room, that every one of us live lives outside of this room that are communicating something, constantly communicating, constantly communicating to every, everybody that we see, Everywhere that we go, the potential is ridiculous. It's just amazing. But at the heart of evangelism is value. And I really think that's what it's going to come down to for us, is us recognizing the value that is in every person. I think there are some who like don't share their faith because they're afraid or don't know what to say, there's all this kind of stuff. But really, if we want to get a good foundation for an understanding of evangelism, it comes down to us really just looking at people like God looks at them. That's going to change us. That's going to propel us forward. To think about those co-workers and roommates and family members who don't know Christ and not to see them as like, oh, they're pagans or they're like whatever, 
not to see him as we're better than them, to see him like Jesus saw him as separated, and they need to know their value. So we're going uh, so I'm going to eat with them. I'm going to connect with them. I'm going to make sure they know that they're valuable. Um, that's pretty big. So yeah, know your story, love your story, embrace your story. Recognize that a part of your story is someone, like God sought you out through some means, a person, uh, through, through some noun. I'm going to trademark that one. God sought you out, and you realized your worth and your value to him, and you were rejoined to him through Christ. Beautiful. And now you join the search party. Let's pray. God, um, we uh, we acknowledge that um, that there there's just something that is uncomfortable just for whatever reason um, when it comes to sharing our faith and being a witness and all those kind of things that come along with church culture. Uh, we're trusting God that for you to just redo all that to teach us what it's about. We see that it's sharing our story. God, we see the, not only the elements of our story in Luke 15, but we see what, what it's really all about. It's about communicating that value, that worth, to those who mean so much to you. And God, you send us out. Every day you give us relationships, you give us encounters, you give us experiences. And in every one of those situations, we're communicating something. Communicating something about our beliefs, the way that we live, and the way that we function. And we're communicating something about how you feel about the people we encounter. God, help us to to love you more and more and more. And as we do, we're going to love the things that you love. I pray, God, that you help us to see people the way that you see them. Not labeled with some sort of past or some sort of issue or some sort of hang-up. You see them as people you created, people created in your image, but because of sin they are separated and we're a part of those who get to go out and, and tell them that they matter. And as we do that, God, we ask that you, you use us. God, teach us how to see, how to listen, how to think. Because it's too important, God, for us to just look the other way. We love you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.